Good morning. I'm not going to speak from the gospel text in the lectionary this morning, but I did want to hear it. <laughs> we are in our third week on the uh, Apostles' Creed as we're sort of unpacking it, why we say this week in and week out. Um, historically, we found out that the Apostles' Creed began to emerge in the late first, early, late first century, early second century, and um, that it was really a form, formation that was given to help give direction and boundaries to belief and to address what were called heresies uh, that were emerging. Heresies are like false beliefs or claims that were seen to be detrimental to true faith. We saw how this creed, this Apostles' Creed, was first used as the baptismal vow, like one would do a wedding vow. You're going to see that in a moment. We're going to do one of those this morning, this baptismal vow. When we repeat the creed week in and week out, we're remembering our baptism, our marriage vow to Christ and to his church. Uh, last time we talked about how the I believe of the creed transitioned to we believe in the context of liturgical worship as the saints gathered and the ramifications of that. Today, we will focus on what it means to believe. <laughs> when we say we believe, what does that believe part actually mean? What you and I believe as Christ followers is important. Unlike other religions that just required certain practices to be done, you know, you might be part of something where you had to participate in certain rituals or sacrifices with certain prayers that you were told to pray. Uh, it was really just that you had to do that stuff. But from the beginning, Christianity didn't just have practices and rituals. It certainly had that, Christian action. Belief was emphasized that truths were thought to be as important as ritual that we would do. You remember Jesus on this point when he talks about worship to the woman at the well. And he says in John 4, God is spirit and God's worshipers must worship in spirit, but not only that, also in truth, which is a cognition, an understanding, framework of, of theology, that kind of stuff was important. Truth matters in the context of the Christian experience. Consequently, great care was taken from the very beginning of the church to make sure that the followers of Jesus understood what they were to do and why they were to do it. Young disciples called catechumens uh, would go through a process as little we know from the record as nine months to three years where they would be acclimated to the faith and they would be asked to renounce wrong beliefs and also to renounce wrong ways of living that were um, did not correspond to the gospel of Christ. So it was very intentional. They took time with newbies in the faith, right? Because the belief uh, that they had, the beliefs that they embraced were deemed important. Now that being said, because we are modern, a modern audience, uh, we need to talk about what they meant when they talked about belief. Because we moderns get belief confused with absolute knowing. Uh, like we know that water is composed of two hydrogen atoms and, and one oxygen you know, atom, or that the speed of light is E you know, t equals mc squared, uh, or the exactly 299,792,458 meters per second. We know such things, right? But knowing in faith is not the scientific kind of knowing. 
uh, or believe. Faith is not a science class. <laughs> our knowing and our belief is rooted not in facts that can be proved, but in revelation. We know what we know in faith because God chose to reveal things, these knowings to us. That's the Christian claim. And the claims of revelation are, number one, that God is the author and source of all we see and know. One of the other creeds, the Nicene Creed, it says that God is the creator of all things visible and invisible. God, number two, has chosen to communicate God's presence uh, and role to the human uh, race by revelation uh, in various ways that I'll show you in just a moment. And the number three that, that we know is that the fitting response to this revelation of God is belief. So we believe in the revelation of God. We don't study and, and grab stuff and prove axioms and that kind of thing and try to believe it. We actually re receive a revelation to which we respond and believe. Hence the creed declares we believe. This divine revelation comes to us in the context of two books that we know of and one person. Okay. And here's what those are. Number one is the book of creation. The church has historically said God is revealing himself through creation, that the beauty and the order of the universe with its, with its living things is a kind of reflection, expression, revelation of the person of God. Romans 1 says... From the beginning, creation in its magnificence enlightens us to his nature. Creation itself makes God's undying power and divine identity clear, even though they are invisible. So somehow in the creation, God is revealing himself. And as we just look at the order of it all, and we look at the vastness of it all, there are things about the, the creation that actually speak of God in, in, uh, in the uh, church's explanation of theology that would talk about the, the Trinity being in a kind of dance and that this giving to one another and this expression of love within the Trinity spilled out of the Trinity and that's what we call creation. And what happens is as Aquinas calls it this, he says the, 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 this power that creates was what exited out of God. He calls it the Latin exitus out of God. And that when that happened, as creation comes, there's a response from creation back to God, which he called reditus. And somehow, as God within God does what God is and is who God is, it spills to creation. And then creation jumps into that thing that God is, and we share in what God is. And all of a sudden, we have this dance. We enter the divine dance, ergo, the human experience, right? And the world and the universe which we see. So that's the book of creation. And then there's the book of God, the second book, which is what we call the Bible as Christians. It's a claim. It's a faith claim. The claim is that God acted in the scriptures. You see God acting in unique and specific ways in human history. And the belief for us is that he continues to do so, that God continues to do so. And to speak to humanity in various ways. We know historically through God's people, uh, the prophets, Israel, the church. God's voice is heard through God's people, which is recorded in what we call the Bible. And we believe that here God is revealed, but here God is revealed in part. Very important. Pieces. All right. Then we have this person who gives us the clearest revelation of God, and that person is Christ for us. 
He, for the Christian, is the ultimate revelation of God. It's caught in the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What he's saying is God's spoken and speaks in history in little ways. But he, he says, in these days has spoken to us in his son in whom he, appeared, he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So he's centering on Jesus. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So if I was up here, and those of you that uh, know anything about me know I can't draw, but if I, if I drew a picture, let me just try to draw it on my hand. Any guess what that is? It's a quarter. <laughs> it's not a good image of a quarter, but it is a quarter. What, what the text is saying is that God has spoken in all kinds of ways and drawn quarters in all kinds of ways in history, in the Old Testament, in the way he spoke through the Jews, etc. But Jesus is not this. Jesus is, anybody have a quarter? Actual one? Well, the offering hasn't been taken. You certainly have one. <laughs> you know, so, so <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right, you got one? Beautiful. All right, so this. <laughs> so this is, this is my rendition, various kind of rendition of a quarter, and this is the exact representation of a quarter. So this is the stories and the ways in which God spoke historically and the ways are a little bit, little bit not quite seen, maybe misinterpreted at times. But in these days, he's spoken to us. Jesus is the exact representation of God. <laughs> and not only that, it says he's the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, which is, which is kind of like saying if, if God is light, Jesus is the bright. Or if God is water, Jesus is the wet. That's that somehow when you talk about Jesus, he is the clearest revelation that we have of God. But, but here's something a tad disturbing for our modern minds, okay? The, the purpose of revelation is not to know God or understand him completely or even mostly. There's a lot of mystery and complexity involved in knowing God. True, Christianity has a simplicity to it. This is why it's made accessible even to children, right? But that doesn't mean there isn't complexity involved. There is. Some parts of theology are quite clear, other parts will make you wrinkle your eyebrows in confusion a little bit because eternal things are often hard to explain and impossible to understand completely. Here's a text that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths 
You just can't trace them. They're too big. You're not going to get a big enough piece of tracing paper to trace God. He's just too big. He's beyond tracing. And who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? There's some level. What he's talking about is this God knowledge that is opaque at best, pieces at best. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul makes the statement, for now we see through a glass darkly. Not very clear. Then that's the best we got going. Certainly the very concept of religion demands deep conceptions about God, which Christianity possesses with unique and abundance and with clarity through these books and through this person. But that's only one side of the story, one side of our faith. We can be confident of our knowledge of God on some level, but on another, God is wholly other, and we should stand bewildered. The temptation is to overreach with our faculty of conception in the name of theology. And though we can know God in some ways, there are things about God that are unknowable to us, aspects of God that exclude the possibility of inquiry and questioning, places where we have nothing within the human experience to be able to orient to a rational discussion because God is other. We are finite. God is infinite, right? And so way, I mean, all the way through church history, this quote is from way back in the fourth century, John Chrysostom, and here's what he says. We call God the inexpressible, the unthinkable God the invisible, the inapprehensible, who quells the power of human speech. Why? Because we don't know how to talk about it. And transcends the grasp of moral thought, inaccessible to angels, unbeheld of the seraphim, those are kind of angels, unimagined of the cherubim, another kind of angels, invisible to principalities and authorities and power, and in a word to all creation. What's he saying? We may know some things about God, but there's so much more we don't know about God and can't even conceive about God. Here's the point. There are many questions in faith which we are not capable of answering satisfactorily. Trinity is an example. The kind of mystery most of us are familiar with is the kind that we find in a novel or a good movie, right? Uh, that's explained eventually with some good detective work and when the arc of the story's finished. We see it, right? Eternal mystery doesn't work that way. It always remains a mystery. <laughs> even when you do your best to describe what is known about it, and you learn more and more and more and more and more and more about it. It still remains mystery. When I was younger, I resisted the idea of mystery. I thought that it was just the fruit of a lazy mind. And so my underlying deception was that I believed mystery could be figured out with prayer and a better understanding of the Bible, and inadvertently I ended up wrestling with the Bible, trying to force it to say things that it was never intended to say, and even then, when I'd pull that kind of thing off, my answers were unsatisfactory. Mystery remains. Creeds are basically the declarations of the best we know, not of the whole thing. But they carry the presumption that our knowing is always limited and partial. What is knowable to us can be likened to a million-sized piece puzzle. You know, a million pieces of, of a puzzle, like a big puzzle that had a million pieces to it. And what we have are just a few of those pieces. So I brought a few of those million. There's not a million here. But this 
This is what theology is. So if I'm preaching on a Sunday morning, what I'm basically doing is reaching in the thing and just sort of here, here's some. <laughs> hey, let me tell you about God right here. Let me give you some God thoughts. Go ahead and pick up a couple of those. Wait, go ahead, really, pick up a couple of those. Did I give you some yet? You want some of this, man. These are God thoughts. Right? I'm giving it to you, man. I'm going to give you every one that I have, and somebody's going to be mad at me. Okay. So look at him. Tell me who God is. Who's God here? Well, God is blue. Does anybody else, is, does everyone see God as blue, or is there a different? God's green. God's yellow, green, blue, striped. Huh? God has a tree? Is a tree. God has tomatoes. God is a tomato. God is a tomato. What else? Furry animal. See, now here's the deal. If we all get together, a few of the pieces might fit together. But a bunch of them won't. And the reality is we don't have the box cover. All we have are those bits and pieces. That's the best you'll ever get. What's in your hand right now with God. This is why we have to be careful when we run around claiming what we think God does, what we think, who we think God is. It's not that it's not true. It's just not as true as sometimes we think we, it is true. So there always should be a dominating kind of humility when we talk about God that fills our mind. And, and though there's lots of knowing, there's lots of unknowing. And if we would talk about that and kept talking about it and got together and tried to put together what we can, all of us would say, well, God is green and God is blue and God's got stripes, but what if, there's, what if God's more than that? We just don't have the peace. And in a way, you'd start talking about more about what God isn't from your peace than who God is from your peace. And now you're getting into the arena of the biggest part of theology that most of us are not aware of. And that's the theology that talks about what God isn't, what we can't say because we do not know. And talking about that, it's kind of an, it's a whole discipline. It's called, it, don't get lost with this word, it's a $50 word, and if you learn it and know what it is, we'll give you Bible bucks for it, you can get something out there. But... It's called apophatic theology. And apophatic theology means the, the, what, the, the theology we really can't speak about. <laughs> it's the parts of God we don't know. And what we realize is there's more we don't know than what we do know. That doesn't mean there isn't certitude. There's certitude that we can have with God. But it's a certainty that's rooted in union with God, uh, which is a different kind of certitude than using scientific rationality. Our certainty is the result of full participation with God, not in full understanding of God. Our certainty is the fact that we're part of Him. He's part of us, and it's in that that we rest. I've got a peace. I'm in. That's the certitude. To say we believe in God is different than to say that if I let go of this marker in my hand, 
it will fall to the floor. See, I, I know that. I believe that. But that kind of believing is different because it's based, it's based on gravity, which is based on observable scientific experience. Belief in God is not scientific. Belief, belief in God is not a physical reality. It's a metaphysical reality, which means beyond physical reality. God cannot be seen or measured in any kind of physical or scientific way. So the belief in the sense of religious is more like beauty, right, than scientific fact. We recognize beauty, but not in the same way we know gravity. We may try to expound on the category of the beautiful with words, but after you try to talk about it, you know the words can't capture it. Beauty, to try to dis- expand or expound on beauty, you, something more is needed than words. Experience, seeing, The confidence that something has beauty is a confidence that comes from an inner conviction, not necessarily provable fact. Faith is more like that. I believe in God is more like that. The problem is we moderns crave for certainty, especially in religion. And consequently, some try to make faith a science by stacking Bible verse on top of Bible verse to make the point as though they have this absolute certain proof of something that's stated as though the Bible verses are scientific facts. But that kind of use of the Bible is simply a modern twist on very ancient texts. The kind of certainty we have in faith does not attempt to eliminate contradictions. It does not attempt to eliminate ambiguity. In fact, uh, which is exactly what scientific certainty tries to do, right? But, But holding on to contradiction. God is blue. No, God is yellow. No, God is striped. No, God is a creature, fur. <laughs> Whatever, furry. Is that what you had, furry creatures? Is that what you had over there? <laughs> God looks like a tomato to me. See, when you understand that you're do- the key to doing good-, good theology is to hold on to both contradiction and ambiguity. But it adds a complexity that demands careful attention and is filled with brain-teasing statements and, that are about God. Let me give you a couple that you'll go, what? Because either, these are true statements, theological statements that are true. Every one of them are true. God is knowable is true. God is unknowable is true. God is neither knowable nor unknowable is true. God is more than knowable and more than unknowable is true. Go in peace. (laughs) See, each of these statements are actually true in different ways. And so talking about God is inherently difficult because talk itself is filled with finite language to talk about an infinite God. When we try to talk about the infinite one, we're subject to the limits of finite language that's struggling to articulate the infinite, struggling to articulate what cannot be articulated, the ineffable. Working out the logic of Christian speech about ineffable, which means not being able to speak about it without words, you can't use words, unspeakable God, doing that requires a disciplined speech of unknowing. (laughs) And what's called learned ignorance. In other words, the more you hold on to your little piece and talk to a few other people about their little piece, the more you're going to say, you know, we don't know all that much about that. And the more you learn about what you don't know, you start getting into the deep end of the pool theologically. 
there's a mysterious presence of God filled with contradiction, filled with ambiguity. But this ignorance or this ineffability is not due to God distancing himself or because we have sin. It is due to the superabundant gift of God's presence and that God's sweetness is always more than we can digest. He's always too grand for us to understand. Divine presence will always carry mystery precisely because of the nature of divinity. <laughs> divinity is always beyond mortal and mortal knowledge, whether in this life or the next. And I want to say something about that right now that, that, I, that I think lots of us Americans, we Americans struggle with, and it's simply this. There are really experts in theology. Just like there are experts in medicine. Just like there are experts in engineering. There are aspects of theology where we carefully point to what we cannot say about God. It's called the discipline of learned ignorance. And that needs to be navigated by experts. It's tedious, erudite theology that's done against the background of human ignorance and about the nature of God. And it is a particular kind of theology that offers a method or form of speech that aims to navigate between what we presume and and nothingness, and it, it's the untrained, it sounds like double, silly double talk. God is noble, God is unknowable, God is neither noble or no, unknowable. And you start getting into these comments, and it isn't until you tease apart and sit in the room and learn about what the church has said about these things that it starts beginning to dawn. Most of us don't care about this stuff, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It is the theology that struggles to remain aware of what we do not know and cannot know or say about God and the mysteries of faith in tension with what we do know and what we can say. It's the theology that's more about what we find uh, that we cannot say. It's a discipline of unsaying than what we can say about God. The unsaying kind of theology, this apophatic theology, is not saying nothing. It's, it's not an articulation of the absence of God. But these conversations carefully point out what we can't say of the divine conception of God's presence or absence. And it's always rooted and framed in the super abundance of God's presence, intimately encountered, but it's always saying, all I have is a peace. What's your peace? What might we infer from that? What don't we know? What can't we infer? What this kind of theology promises is not clarity, but here's what it does promise. A share in God. We're leaping into God, which should be completely disorienting. Gregory of Nyssa says it like this, quote, In our constant participation in the blessed nature of the good, he's talking about God, the graces that we receive at every point are indeed great, but the path that lies beyond our immediate grasp is infinite. You see what he's saying? He's saying, we're running at this. We're grasping at this. And as we grasp and we taste, we realize we're stepping only into the infinite. And we never grasp enough to feel like we've grasped it at all. This will constantly happen, he continues, to those who thus share in the divine goodness. Notice the word share, not know. And they will always enjoy greater and greater participation in grace throughout all eternity. Thus, they never stop rising, moving from one new, new beginning to the next, and the beginning of an ever greater graces is never limited of itself. The soul grows by a constant participation, that which transcends it. So what he's really saying is, the, more we, the deeper we go, the reali we realize it's deeper yet. The deeper we go then, the more we realize it's deeper yet, and we will never reach the depths of God, even in eternity. 
This kind of thinking has been around since the beginning of Christianity. And the appropriate response to God, when we think about God properly and when I say we believe in God, at some point needs to be silence and repose because it's disorienting. But it's not the response of quietism, you know, we just shut down and stop thinking about it. Rather, it's the, the repose of thinking, human thought, where your discursive mind, discursive means that you're thinking things through and what if and trying to figure out what might really work. We're supposed to draw on that. And we, we sh- are supposed to try to circumscribe, circle. We're supposed to try to circle around God and try to understand God, but he is not circumscribable. <laughs> we can't get our circle around him. That's what Paul said. He said he can't be traced. It's impossible. Yet we're supposed to try. And yet we need to realize it won't work. But we do grow when we do learn what is left in us through this process is this longing, even though it's not discursive, and even though it's not rational, even though it's not figuring everything out, crossing T's, dotting I's, it's, it's not that, but it's a longing for the share in the divine, in his presence. It's the silence of love. Hopefully, I made your brain hurt just a little. This is not the stuff of entertainment this morning. This is the stuff of thinking. And you're invited as a Christian to actually think. So, we're called to believe. But belief isn't an absolute certainty. It's a dance between clarity and ambiguity between positive claims and absolute contradictions to those claims. And there we are. We have a God who's known to us as love, as the working in time, as the creator, as the incarnated, as the one who moves humanity toward an end, a a, a telos, an end game, a will. But God is also infinite, incorporeal, which means he has no body, uncreated, incomprehensible, and the one who dwells in the cloud of unknowing. At best, we have to be tentative about our belief, humble about our understanding. And as a matter of course, we should talk more about participation in God than we do trying to describe God. The creed tells us to hold certain beliefs. It begins, we believe in God. All right? What does that entail? How do we believe like this in God? What exactly is the Christian to believe about God? I'm glad you asked that. We'll talk about it next week.